0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. My guest on Conversations today is Toni Jordan. Toni is a best selling writer. Her latest novel is called Prettier If She Smiled More. But Toni didn't grow up in a house with books. Her dad was a greyhound trainer, and her mum ran a TAB. Tony's mum was hardworking and hilarious. She didn't give a fig what other people thought of her, but she could also make life tough for the family who loved her. All her life, Tony felt she had to look out for her mum, but her mum often managed to surprise her. Like the time in her mid 60s when she visited Tony in Melbourne to go to the AFL Grand Final and went missing, only to finally turn up at home with a giant Brisbane Lions tattoo on her arm. Hi, Tony.
1: Hello, Sarah.
0: Tony, you grew up in Brisbane in a, in a working-class family, but in a fairly nice suburb. How did your parents come to buy your family home? This is a famous story in
1: my family, Sarah, that, that my dad won the deposit on a treble. So... So Just that's a horse race, in... yeah. yeah? Well, it's three horse races, Sarah. I'm amazed you don't know that. <laughs> I apologise. <laughs> so you have to pick the winners in three
0: races. It's it's a very big deal. So he had that win and, and invested it in a family home? He did. He was a very... My father is a very clever and
1: disciplined person, yes.
0: Your mum, as I mentioned, ran a, a TAB, a betting agency, What are your memories, Tony, of what it was like inside when you opened the door into that TAB?
1: It's really a lost world now, but it's still so vivid in my mind. First of all, the smoke. (laughs) Everyone smoked. My mum smoked like an absolute chimney. So there's ashtrays everywhere on the floor and and cigarettes. And it's a normal... It was a normal size shopfront, the kind of just a small, single-fronted store and on each side are kind of lino surfaces, counters, and above that are cork boards where you would put up the, the daily form sheets so people could stand in front of the counters and and look at who was running in what race. And, of course, they all came in with their own form guide from the paper, but the the ones on the cork boards were important because that's where you could put the scratchings. You know, your mum would go out before every race and cross out the horses or dogs that were scratched so um, they could keep up to date with exactly what was going on. How had she come to run this business in the first place? I think what had happened is my mum was really very clever woman, very smart woman, especially with numbers, with maths, but like a lot of working-class women back then, she left school early, she went to a commercial college and she got a job i think as the secretary for somebody who worked for the TAB head office and kind of worked her way from there to to having her own agency running it by herself a woman in the 1970s it was really
0: a very big deal and when she started i mean there wouldn't have been computers then i mean now betting is such an online kind of activity no. but but how how did it actually
1: operate what was involved it's it seems so archaic now,
0: but what would happen
1: is on the wall there would be like a, a box, like a wooden box with all little squares, like a grid, like you were sorting mail, I guess. And at the end of every race, she would sort the tickets for that race by the horse number, say. So all the ones who would bet on number one would go in, all the little betting slips for number one would go into the box number one. And at the end of the race, she would throw out all the ones that did not win or place. And then sit down with her huge adding machine and um, head office would call telling her what the dividends were, how much she had to pay out per bit, and then she would kind of just do it all just work it all out and, and pay people completely with no backup. Like it seems ridiculous now we have a computer to tell us. When we go to the Seven Eleven buy a pack of tissues, we have a computer that tells us how much change to get. But all this is kind of in her head. She was like a computer herself. She was really remarkable.
0: Yeah, and she must have just had to have been on the ball all the time.
1: All the time, all the time. So at the end of the day, you know, she had to make sure that everything balanced, of course, and the right amount of money. She had the right amount of cash. There was a safe, a very heavy old-fashioned safe in the back, in the little back room. And um, and she had to make sure, you know, everything was right. It's a really a great deal of responsibility. And she would work very long hours. So... Not every day, but big race days like the Melbourne Cup. Oh, yeah. What was that um, like? What was Melbourne Cup oh, day like? We wouldn't see her for three days back then when everything had to be done, you know, by hand. She would have one of those little, you know, those banana lounges with the little plastic slats, you know, <laughs> in the back, in the little back room where she would sleep. And she would, it would be so much processing that she would have to do that she would not be home for days.
0: What about you? Did you spend much time
1: there? we spent a lot of time there because she did she was a single mother by the time i was 11 so often she would take us with her and my first job as a very young teen was cleaning up <laughs> which Lots i think of was trays. kind of Yeah, lots of ashtrays. I still cannot now even barely look at an ashtray. Oh, my goodness. Um, So I was sweeping the floor and emptying the ashtrays and, you know, wiping the counters. and, And by the time I got to be 15, computers had come in luckily then Because I would not have been the kind of person to give out perfect change. You didn't (laughs) change with every bet. I would not have, that would not have been good. But computers had come in by then, so I would, they were enormous hulking things that you would feed the tickets into. And they would often in those very early years get clogged. It's like a printer today, like they were just disastrous. And I had quite an aptitude for, pulling apart the innards, I went retrieving these lost <laughs> tickets. But the money, I'm very glad that I just gave out what was printed on the
0: screen. Was it a noisy place, Tony? Like, I guess there are races always on, on, on. Was there just one TV or was there multiple races going on? Just one TV.
1: But no, it's like a church. Everyone <sighs> is concentrating. Like, the next race, Sarah, could be the one that <laughs> pays off the mortgage or takes you on a holiday. It's, it's really a place of worship and, and a very serious... You know, and that was, it was kind of a very much a community centre for mostly old blokes but sometimes women and, and sometimes younger people and they would come in and see their mates. They would be there from when she opened the door on a Saturday morning and they would stand there all day and, um, you know, because they're standing at the counter staring at the corkboards, at the form guides... That's, that's the only way some men can talk.
0: Of course. They've got a diverse no activity. Yes. yes.
1: They can stand next to each other and, and actually have conversations. So I, I think she was really loved by all of her customers and very much um, very much a part of that, of that community.
0: What about when you were, were working there behind the counter? What did the, the punters make of you?
1: I was always, you know, the slightly odd kid. <laughs> I was always kind of the bookish kid and my mother was really obsessive about football and had the radio on for the races all day, every day. Like my most common um, memory from childhood from both my parents was, you know, I would try and tell them something and they would be, just wait till after the race, after the race. <laughs> um, so the the radio was always on, the, the races were always on and I was this kind of weird kid who who read books and they were slightly bemused <laughs> but you know she was very just did anything whatsoever to support what I wanted to do. so she worked very long hours yet on I think it was every second Tuesday night she would drive my sister and I to Karina library and sit in the car out the front <laughs> listening to the trots on her on the car radio while while we went in and chose our library books so <laughs> She was really very supportive. (laughs) Uh, Not really understanding, bemused, but supportive.
0: Gambling can, uh, well, it's a lot of emotion and that things can go very well or very badly. Do you remember that inside the the TAB, you know, big losses or big wins?
1: Uh, I don't remember that among the punters, but Mum was really a terrible gambler. I, I don't know how you could not be in that environment. So she had enormous losses that, that really were very detrimental to her life and her health. And, you know, we would have, my sister and I, when we were 12 or 13, we would have nights where she would come home and say, we're going out to a seafood restaurant <laughs> and we would put on dresses and we would go out and I would have a seafood crepe. And my sister would have oysters, like, at 12 in, you know, the 70s. And, um, and, and then two nights later... Lee and I would be hiding under the dining table while someone was banging on the door that she'd borrowed money from. Wow. So, you know, it's these enormous kind of swings.
0: What did that do to your own attitude towards money, Tony? I
1: I think that's why I'm so square. <laughs> I'm like the squarest person, Sarah, in every aspect of my life and I'm I have a budget, have all my little bank accounts like some like I've always been like 80 years old organizing my little Myself, I remember um, I I bought my first house when I was in my mid-twenties, back when that was difficult, but not impossible, not today. And I remember she was disgusted at me. Disgusted? Just just the look on her face, her face just curdled. And she said, if you have enough money for a deposit for a house, why don't you buy a red convertible and drive (laughs) around the country like a normal person? (laughs) (laughs) So... That was that was the only time I really remember her being very kind of judgmental of my, I mean, she was kind of eye-rolly because I was the squarest kid alive. You know, she was a um, a person, a very big personality. She did a lot of drugs. She, she had boyfriends. Like, she was having the absolute time of her life and I'm the little nerd in the corner with my like copy of Pride and Prejudice looking at her, you know. <laughs>
0: Tell me a bit about about your dad and your memories of him from when you were a kid, Tony. He was a, a greyhound trainer, so
1: yeah, he he kind of did that more part time
0: mm-hmm. um, when he still lived with us.
1: We had the greyhounds living with us. We generally only had two at a time, but they're the most beautiful animals. Just I still um, I can't walk down the street without patting a greyhound if I see one. Really lovely just beautiful animals. but Were they um, pets
0: though? if, if your dad no, was a trainer, no, so what... absolutely not
1: pets. They, they have a job to do and they have to do that job. you know the greyhound racing industry is a very cruel business. was then and still is. and it's something that I didn't see when I was eight. <laughs> but it's something that's so so obvious now these these poor dogs and and what becomes of them if they don't run fast enough.
0: Did you ever go to the track and and watch the races?
1: Always, always. We would school holidays. We would go three or so four times a week, and back then on Thursday nights they had the Gabba it was a greyhound track before it was a football stadium. So we would go to the Gabba on Thursday nights. Mum would sometimes drive to Rockhampton, which is four hours. <laughs> so she would leave our place if she only worked during the day at say four o'clock drive through to Rockhampton at 8 o'clock, go to the races, leave at 11, home at 3. Wow. So, but we would go to Beanley. There was a track at Beanleigh. Kapalabar was a, a straight, so it wasn't a round track. It was straight, so it was good for we had a couple of dogs who were hopeless at corners, so they were good at Kapalabar. And Launton in, in the northern suburbs of Brisbane was another one, and I don't know if any of those are still there.
0: Were there other kids there, Tony? Um, there weren't a lot of other kids.
1: We would get uh, a little like 10 bucks at the beginning of the day and you could always find someone to put a bet on for you. All you had to do was stand next to somebody, really some <laughs> nice looking lady at the, at the tote at the track and say, can I have $2 on, <laughs> you know. So you were betting as a kid? Absolutely, absolutely. We were right into it. We were never had any uh, wins, which now, of course, I'm grateful for Mm. because that's how people get addicted when they have, you know, a substantial win early on and then they're chasing it forever. But um, so I always kind of lost my ten bucks. But you could, you know, when you're you're a kid in that environment, adults are very kind to you, and someone would always buy us a pink lemonade or. you know, <laughs> give us 50 cents if we ran out of money to put a little place bet on. Um, we would, <laughs> this sounds quite disgusting now and I can't believe I ever used to do it, but we used to, people just threw their tickets on the ground and we were, my sister and I were always convinced that someone somewhere had had misread a ticket and had thrown away <laughs> some huge sum of money. So we would quite often look <laughs> at, the, at the rubbish tickets on the ground, just checking, <laughs> just checking. <laughs> Never came good, for which, of course, I was deeply disappointed at the time, but now so relieved that I never had the burden of, a, of an early win.
0: So was it racing that brought your parents together in the first place? How did they meet one another? Look, I'm not really sure. By the time I was
1: old enough to <laughs> to ask those kind of questions, my mum was really fueled by her passionate dislike of my father. So I would never have even dreamed of asking that kind of question. There were
0: no romantic stories to be told. No. So <laughs> how, how do you remember the lead up to their splitting up? What What were things like at home before that?
1: Um, Dad is a very disciplined. He put himself through his bachelor's degree at night to be an accountant and very physically disciplined, sporty person. He's in his mid 80s, he still plays tennis and and gets on his bike. You know, he, he's a very disciplined person, and my mum is has no discipline whatsoever. So a very kind of big woman who who ate a lot and really had would never dream even slightly of exercising or or any taking care of herself in any possible way, and smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. And my father didn't smoke. So toward the end, she was very, you know, throwing plates against walls and kind of wildly demonstrative kind of person, yelling and and screaming and that kind of thing.
0: Do you remember the day that that he left?
1: Yes, it was, um, I think it was Valentine's Day, (laughs) 1978, maybe. And um, coming home, from school and, and finding my mother in bed and just
0: having her say that that he's left. Did you say Mum was angry after you, I mean, in the lead-up to your dad going, but how did she feel about him after, after he left?
1: It, it was just fury, just the wildest fury you could possibly imagine. Twice she went after him. Once she waited outside the flats where he was living and tried to run him down... And he had to jump on the bonnet of a parked car to kind of get out of her way. And and once she went after him with a shotgun. What? But, uh, he, <laughs> he survived, happily survived. But this is my mother, right? This is the way her amazing mind would work. So my father is a very fit and capable and competent man and he disarmed her quite easily, I would imagine. And I would say... 30 years later or 40 years later, she was still saying, next time you see your father, remind him he owes me for that shotgun. He never paid me for that shotgun.
0: <laughs> so she wasn't filled like with remorse? No, she was
1: filled with, I paid for that, he took it, therefore he owes me the money for the shotgun. I, I mean, what kind, of, <laughs> what kind of thinking gets you to that place? Did you I witness just...
0: any of that, Tony, or was it more no. stories that you you No, hear? that was all stories.
1: She would come home and said, you know this is this is what I've just done. <laughs> she wasn't ashamed of anything. She was just, in her view, she had this righteous
0: anger. Anger because um, he'd left, because he'd, he'd cleared he'd out. Because he'd left. Yes, yes. Were you ever the target of that fury yourself? Yeah,
1: she was a very angry person in a lot of ways and, you know, I was a really a lucky kid. My grandmother moved in with us when my parents split up And she adored us, was extremely stabilising kind of influence. And, you know, I was good at school and I I think she felt like I had every advantage and she had had no advantages. And my grandmother, I think, was a much better grandparent than she was a mother to my mother. My my grandmother grew up in Nazareth House, which is a kind of Catholic orphanage um, down in Wynnum that that became quite notorious for, for what happened to the children there, and uh, so she didn't grow up in her family, so she had no idea how to be a mother, and and I think my mother also was not clear, was not clear on what this cable was, so I think she was very, she was a very angry person who felt really cheated by life.
0: What sort of stories did your Grandma tell you about her own childhood and growing up in that in that orphanage.
1: Um, my grandma was a very pragmatic person, and one one story that she did tell me was the orphanage at that time was attached to a, a hospice for nuns for uh, aged and ill nuns, and um, she told me once that one of the jobs of the of the kids and her job in particular was to read to these severely ill old nuns read to them from the bible as they were dying and then when they died close their eyes and go and get a sister so you know she would have been a very a very small child when this was when this was all happening but but you know the stories that have come out about these catholic orphanages are of course terrible and a couple of times I, I did try and talk to her about what she might have suffered there and she was absolutely nonplussed about the whole thing. She was like, these these people clothed us, fed us, uh, educated us, put us up. It's a small price to pay. Hmm. So she saw it as entirely transactional. Did she so, keep her a faith? Was she religious when you knew her? Very religious, very Religious in a very simple kind of, you know, she had a statue of Mary beside her bed and she would say the rosary every day and just a very unquestioning, very simple kind of Catholicism.
0: What about your mum? Did she share that?
1: She had one prayer that she used to say often, which was, Hail Mary, full of grace. Please let number seven win the next race. (laughs)
0: Not at all. No, not at all. And she and Gran would fight about that one by the nuns, Tony. (laughs) (laughs) She would very much upset Gran with her with her blaspheming (laughs) and yeah, they would fight about
1: it absolutely. (laughs) There was lots of fights. Everybody was fighting all the time.
0: How how did you end up at the local Catholic school then? If your mum wasn't religious and your mum and dad had split up, which was still not common and certainly not at Catholic schools in the seventies. No,
1: no. So so what happened? is. They split up when I was in the final year of primary school and and I was pretty much enrolled in the local state high. And uh, when my parents divorced, there was a clause in the divorce settlement that said he would pay for our education expenses. And he went to a state school and, and mum went to a state school and we went to a state primary school. And I think he thought this meant Uniforms and books, you know, this would be our our education expenses. And I think the way my mum told this story was she suddenly had a blinding light bulb moment with this clause, so hightailed it up to the local Catholic private school, and and kind of sat in the head nun's office and sobbed to her about her fatherless girls and what would become of them in the world and and their moral like my mother had no interest in moral anything but their moral oh the future of my, the moral future of my poor girls and and the you know, they let us in. And we were really the only non-Catholics at this school. And um, they were so great to us. <laughs> they were so great to me, particularly, like just, um, I had to still go to mass and everything and learn all this stuff. Now I'm glad, kind of glad that I know it all.
0: And was it partly for your mum's, it wasn't so much that your mum was focused on your education as that she needed <laughs> your dad to have to foot the bill?
1: Well, certainly that's how she told the story. She was extremely... I mean, of course it was good that we got a a good education, but I think that was the way she told the story. It was not the top priority. The top priority was to make him (laughs) pay.
0: There's, like, a lot of life force. There's a lot of vim. There's a lot of um, animating energy in her. What other moods do you remember being around when you were growing up? How else could your mum be at home?
1: I think because of
0: the pressure of the
1: job, she didn't sleep at at night, so she would take pills to sleep and then breakfast that my gran would bring her in bed, which which was a bottle of Coke and a Vincent's. Do you remember like Bex and Vincent's, oh. these terrible powders that... That she would put on the back of her tongue and then swig down with the bottle of Coke. That was breakfast, breakfast every morning, and then sleeping pills. As she was sitting down to dinner at night when she got home from the TAB, she would have sleeping pills before she ate her dinner. And um, she had to then eat her dinner with a degree of focus. And if she didn't, she would... She would fall face forward in her food, and then we would have to carry her to bed.
0: Who? You and and your gran and your sister? Yeah,
1: my sister and I would take a leg eat. And grand, see, it's now. This is the kind of thing that makes me feel like a terrible person because even now, telling you this, I'm laughing. We would be swaying her down the corridor, you know, and my grand would have her by the shoulders, and Lee and I would have a leg each, and sometimes we would have to put her down. We were laughing that much at the like, time. You were laughing so much at the time. We were laughing like it's so hilarious. Like you could just. It's like weekend at Bernie's or something, you know. <laughs> it was just the funniest thing. I, I don't mean to make it sound flippant because it really wasn't, it was more like a black kind of gallows humour, mm-hmm. I guess, at the time. But there was always going to be somebody to look after us. My, my grand would always look after us. And also my sister is the funniest person alive. My, my last two books have been comedies and I write a lot of comedy and people often remark that they think I'm funny and, and all I can think of is you should make my sister. My sister, my sister is just the funniest person alive, and and just the two of us um, together, it's you know it's she's really very funny, and yeah, it's just the way it happened, and you know later on in that night, I spent a lot of nights where I would sneak out of bed and and sit in the corner of her room, on the floor just. Just to make sure she was just listening to her breathe, mm. I just worried that she would stop breathing during the night. So a, a lot of nights of my childhood, I would I would sneak out of bed and just sit there. So I don't mean to be flippant about it, and I, I was certainly cognizant of what a big deal it was at the time, but I can't really explain the response. Mm-hmm.
0: podcast broadcast This is Conversations with Sarah Kanoski Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC listen app Or go to abc.net.au/conversations Did you feel like you were the adult almost Tony, even as a kid. Yeah,
1: very much. I was always really preoccupied by looking after her and um, you know, trying to think about ways to possibly make it better. You know, I made this plan once where I would take over the household budgeting. Let me take over the household budgeting. And I had all these little envelopes sorted out where I would put, you know, and she was like, Absolutely not. Well, how old but, would you have you know, been
0: when you made that oh, suggestion?
1: I guess eleven, something like that. But it was just, I was just constantly thinking of ways. I went through a, a period of months where I would hide her lighter. You know, at the beginning she thought she'd just been absentmindedly, put it down somewhere. But as as time went on, she would realise that it was me doing this and would be absolutely furious, just just break into this absolute fury that I had done this. And But, you know, her bed, her bedside table marked with burns, her sheets, these little round holes, like I just do not know how she didn't kill herself in the bed. She would have the sleeping tablets and light a cigarette (laughs) and then like somehow she still lived. She made it, I think she was 74 when she died and I truly have no idea how she made it that long. One night the ambulance did have to come to your place, what had happened? Yeah, she tried to kill herself with seriousness a couple of times. Um, and uh, it was always a... I can remember the fraughtness of the decision because she was going to be furious. If I, if we called the ambulance for no good reason, you know, she was going to be absolutely furious. But sometimes you have to call the ambulance. So, so twice we went that far um, once she was committed for a couple of weeks. But um, I like to remember that about her because... To me, it's a reminder that people go through really hard times. You know, she would have been in her, I guess, early 40s then and a really dark time in her life. Her gambling was really out of control. She lost the TAB and had to declare bankruptcy and then picked herself up, got a a job in the public service, like a base-level kind of clerk kind of job, and you know, bought herself a little secondhand car, and and became the greatest grandmother to, <laughs> to my sister's kids. So you know, I don't I don't find that a bad memory. It's a reminder to me about redemption and about sometimes, if you can get people through these really bad spots in their life, things will get better.
0: You say she was committed for a few weeks to a psychiatric unit. How did she yes. feel about? Spending time there, given the kind of woman you've described, I'm not imagining she would have taken easily to that kind of routine and and regimentation.
1: Surprisingly enough, I think she loved it. I went to visit her quite often, and it was truly—I think—the first holiday that she'd huh. ever really had in her life
0: when she didn't work six days a
1: week. Someone and to she, cook her meals um,
0: and wash her sheets. Yeah, and, she was right. just
1: astonished by it, and she just went around chatting to people. She was really good with people of all kinds. Of all kinds of people, there was not a person alive. That's another thing I admire so much about her. She would, she would, and could speak to absolutely everyone. <gasps> And um, I think she actually had a
0: ball. It sounds like she took a lot of the emotional energy in the house when you were growing up. Was there a point where you felt like you had to to break away from that or at least move out to, to kind of start forging your own life? Yeah, this was really,
1: you know, it's one of these decisions that you never know if you've done the right thing because you can't possibly go back and do it the other way. But when I was, I think I would have been just 18, we had one really terrible fight. Like, we we fought all the time. She she screamed at me all the time. And one day she was screaming at me for something. I hadn't, I was making dinner and I hadn't, this sounds so ridiculous, but I, I had put, the dinner in a in a crock pot like a slow cooker and I had I had it on slow, which was too slow. I should have had it on high, which meant she came home from work and it was still raw. And she absolutely just screamed at me. And suddenly I thought if I sit here and keep this up, I'm gonna have a husband that I allowed to scream at me and a boss that I allowed to scream at me and, and my life will become where this becomes acceptable. And I just walked out the back door. I had $4.50 in my pocket. <laughs> I didn't go back. Where did you go? Um, I, I went to... I had a, a wonderful boyfriend at the time who who was working a night shift in the city and I went into his, um, where he's working. I said, I'm not going back. And he said, OK, I guess we're moving out there. <laughs> and... Um, we, we went to his brother's place and slept on the floor for a couple of weeks and, and I dropped out of uni. I was failing out of uni anyway, um, but I dropped out officially and, and uh, started applying for jobs while I was sleeping on his brother's floor and and um, got a job and got a flat and started going back. And every time I went back she would say, look, just come back until you get save some money up, get yourself ready, apply for a job. But I knew I could not go back, not even for one night because... I had to stay kind of strong with that decision. But of course that meant leaving my sister behind who didn't irritate mum the way I did. But uh,
0: you know, it was the that was the decision mm. I made. You started working with horses too. Tony, but in a very different way from, from your mum. <laughs> what
1: job <laughs> did you Only a tiny get? part of them. <laughs> <laughs> Only a tiny part of them, Sarah. So this is, again, I've been so lucky throughout my whole life. I, I I was failing out of uni because home was very difficult. I wasn't sleeping at night. I was sleeping in my lectures. So, you know, my first year uni was just a, a disaster. And when I moved out, I was applying for all kinds of jobs. And in the end, I the job I got was in the mail room in the Department of Physiology at the University of Queensland. And this was just one of the greatest. I've had many, many lucky strokes in my life, and this was one of the luckiest because after about 18 months of working in the mail room, one of the professors kind of said to me, oh, you're... you're you're quite good at this. If you go back and go to lectures during the day at part time, you can work back at night and make up the time. And then he moved me into his lab before I'd even finished my degree. And that that lab was analysing horse blood. It was a really busy kind of lab with maybe 25 people in it. And we all looked at you know different aspects of horse blood, so I was in charge of two specific proteins, and together we put together a picture of um, of parentage. So you could work out how if a horse was related to another horse by looking at a number of factors. So like is this maybe- all
0: before DNA?
1: Yes testing. so we had this enormous all these skillful people working every day on these on these kind of systems and then someone discovered DNA testing we're all out of a job <laughs> it's all finished now you just put it on a slide put it into a machine the results come out but at the time it was huge
0: you then moved to melbourne and and signed up for a tafe course there what was that
1: yeah so i did i did a few other bench research jobs at some biotech companies and Then I I kind of ended up um, working for a pharmaceutical company writing TGA documents, so um, new chemical entity reports or variations for listed medicines or registered medicines. So it's a lot of research. It's a lot of technical writing. And I loved this This work. What did you love about it, what it was such a controlled environment? Yeah, I loved sitting at a desk, even after bench research. Sitting at a desk is fantastic. Like, you can have water next to you. You can, you know, take your shoes off underneath the desk. No one's going to know. Like, it was really... Um, and I loved the in-depth research, finding out all these things. I'd studied p- pharmacology in my degree as well as molecular biology. So I liked finding all this stuff out about, about the effects that things had on the body and compiling it into this these enormous documents that would take like a year. Um, but then Robbie, my husband, who <laughs> who is very good with ideas, he said to me, you know, if you actually went and got a qualification in writing, you could start up your own business, your own business as a technical writer, work from home and take your own clients and not have to work for just one company. And I thought this sounded like a fantastic idea. I wouldn't have to wear shoes ever, Robbie. Exactly. This is a dream. Exactly. I could get a dog. I could just be in my pyjamas all day, <laughs> all the work from home things that I do now. But I thought this was great. So I enrolled in a TAFE course, which was RMIT University's TAFE course on professional writing. And... They had a an entrance interview and I told them I wanted to come to do scientific writing and they were thrilled and they had all these subjects that were appropriate and I'm I'm sitting at the dining room table ticking the form and and Robbie again says to me all you do in your spare time is read novels. You're obsessed with reading novels. Why don't you do one of these creative subjects just for the fun of it? Go, Robbie. And <laughs> I am honestly, I would have said not a creative bone in my body. I, I don't paint or draw or play music. We we didn't have that kind of house, you know. It, it was, I would have said I am not at all a creative person. All I ever did was read novels. But I thought, oh, well, I'll do something for fun because I don't really do anything for fun. So I ticked the little box that said writing a novel and and,
0: um, and then I went off to the course. Well, it was also a work trip to, to KL, to Kuala Lumpur, that helped in this pivot, this turning point in your life amazing, as it ended up amazing. being. What happened? Again, another just lucky.
1: I'm the luckiest person. A lucky moment. So I, I'm I'm doing this technical writing TAFE course. I'm starting up my technical writing business, and I get a I got a great little two week contract. They wanted someone to write sales training manuals for their sales reps, so they flew me over to to KL and put me up in their office for the week, and I wrote these sales training manuals for them. So I'm coming back on the plane and I'm thinking about the creative writing assignment that I'm supposed to be starting. And I get this idea for this woman who counts things, like clear as a bell in my head, this woman who counts things and divides things by tens. And because I was travelling for work, I had my laptop in the overhead compartment. And this, I think, was crucial. I had an aisle seat. (laughs) So because of both those things... I got up, I got down the laptop, and I, I started then and there on the plane the first, I think, 2,000 words of, of what eventually became Edition, my first novel. But I often think, I often think, Sarah, what would have happened had I, you know, had a window seat and the guy next to me was asleep and I I kind of thought, oh, well, I'll just do that when I get home, and then I had forgotten like, the, the voice went away like what would have happened
0: so you say this this voice this idea about a woman counting just appeared in in your mind were you surprised when you say you didn't think of yourself as a creative person to to surprised to meet this side of yourself
1: from from the beginning of my course i loved every minute of writing fiction and the the thing that it reminds me of above everything else is playing Barbies. Like I had this complete Barbie world as a as a girl, like the far side of my bed was like a Barbie set, like with the couch. Every birthday, they, my mother would get me a new piece of Barbie furniture and the, the, I had multiple Barbie families and they would, it was just like Peyton Place, honestly. They would be fighting and <laughs> this person would be then friends with this person and they had different jobs and you know, um, this one was Barbie Doctor and, and she had, you know, like I I lived the, their little lives probably until I was way too old and I should no longer have been playing with Barbies. But that's what it's like. It's like playing dolls in my head. <laughs> I get to make up these people and move them around and do things with them.
0: And it, to me it's just great. It's just great. And that, that example, Tony, is also like people have creative lives in all sorts of ways that aren't just in the the obvious ones of perhaps writing a novel or, I don't know, playing an instrument. Particularly working class people, there's all kinds of creativity that, That's that appears. That's absolutely
1: right. They just don't see it as that or don't call, label it that. Um, once my grandmaid... Little purple knitted little purple dresses for all my dolls, the the Barbies and the baby dolls, like all different sizes of matching little purple knitted dresses, so they all had the same uniform, so I could pretend to be the school teacher. Right, um, but she would have thought that was nothing, and to me, that's an extraordinary act of creativity to knit all these little dresses for all these little dolls. And now I'm really evangelical about the idea of everybody carving out a small amount of time to be by yourself and make something beautiful with your own resources, it it stills your mind and it it makes your life infinitely richer to know that this beautiful thing
0: only existed because of your intelligence and energy. Hmm. What did your mum think about the fact that you were now a writer of novels?
1: (laughs) Well, she read it. Her and Dad both read it. Dad has read all my novels and I can pretty much guarantee they're the only novels he's ever read. He reads every one and calls me to say how much he likes them. Um, so, they, you know, it's easy <laughs> when you've got nothing to compare, <laughs> compare it to. You know, he thinks I'm a genius like because he's never read Margaret Atwood. So it's like, how did you do this, Tup? He says, how did you do that, Tup? Um, but Mum was just, um, she, you know, she bought a little notepad to, to, to stick all my clippings in, all my press clippings. But, you know, I think what defeated her, she, she tried to read it, but because it was a first-person book and she imagined stories being in the third person, you know, a, a, a kind of narrator voice, and this was the voice of the character, she said to me, but who's she talking to, love? The inner kind of monologue thing just didn't kind of make sense to her. And then you wanted
0: to write another one as well.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think she thought, you know, I'd gotten that out of my system, and now I was going to get a, another proper job. And, uh, and she said, "So what are you going to do now?" And I'm like, "Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to write another one." And there was this stunned silence on the phone, and she's like, "You're going to write another one, love? <laughs> like, oh, is this a thing that, <laughs> is this the thing that you just want to keep doing?" This <laughs> is very, very strange. <laughs>
0: When she was in her mid sixties, I think that she came down to visit you in Melbourne. What what was bringing her there? Why did um, Why did she make this great trek from Queensland the to football, Victoria? All the
1: football. Look, I I really can't remember which of the of the Brisbane Lions grand finals this was for, but there were three three Brisbane Lions grand finals. This was her team. Was. Hey, was she a yes? Absolutely, mad Lions, and I. I bought her a scalped ticket that I had seen advertised in the
0: trading post if you can believe that. You can, can take the girl, the girl out of the was. Greyhound uh, track. Yeah. You can't take the Greyhound <laughs> track out of the girl. Yeah, absolutely
1: yeah. right. And she was just incredibly excited. She wanted to go on the train. I think she wanted the whole experience of being with the other other supporters and I came around the corner from coffee to pick her up and drive her to the train station and she was standing outside my house and she was wearing black kind of kicker boots and black tights and an enormous Brisbane Lions jersey that was a dress on her <laughs> and a, a cape she had made from a child single-bed Brisbane Lions doona cover <laughs> that she had sewn. So she, <laughs> she was standing with this enormous Yeah, like Wonder Woman. Cape, Duna, size. Yes, she was Wonder Woman. Really, really. If if Wonder Woman was the world's biggest Brisbane Lions fan, she was Wonder Woman.
0: (laughs) How revved up was she about? about Unbelievably excited.
1: Uh, She just could not wait to also terrorize as many Collingwood supporters as she possibly could, (laughs) and um, (laughs) really get in their faces. She loved the whole. I think you know, as I mentioned, she loved to shout and scream and. Back then, at least, it was very acceptable to get into a bit of Barney. She was often, you know, threatened with (laughs) ejection for abusing people and jumping to the, you know, telling the umpire he was whatever, whatever. You know, she loved all that, the drama of it.
0: So was she going by herself, Tony? By herself.
1: I had offered, like I'd gulped when when uh, when I had offered, but I had offered to to buy two tickets and go with her. But I think she just—I am a wet blanket. She did not want me anywhere near, ruining her fun. She just wanted to do it on her own.
0: And and all her dreams came true, and the lions defeated Collingwood. And I Absolutely. imagine she shared her feelings about that to everyone around her.
1: Yeah, she would have absolutely loved it. She would have suck it. I can see her in <laughs> Collingwood supporter spaces, suck it, loser. She, just, <laughs> she would have gone completely to town. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happened when
0: it was time for for you to pick her up after this great event? Well, it's great a big day, you yeah. know. It's
1: exhausting. She got there first thing, you know. I thought she would be absolutely dead on her and, feet. And what and was I her had...
0: health like? Because you know she'd had various issues. As you Yeah, yes, she was
1: a very she was an unhealthy, a very unhealthy woman, very unsteady on her feet. And didn't do any kind of exercise. It's an exhausting day and had very spent very little time in Melbourne. Maybe she'd visited me. I don't even think she'd ever visited me before. So I'm thinking she's going to call any second and I will go and pick her up from the station. So, you know, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Six o'clock, seven o'clock, eight o'clock. She's not called. I'm I'm thinking, oh my god, I've lost her. I've lost her. How how am I going to tell my sister that I have lost her at the grand final? And you know, by ten o'clock I was nearly ready to call the police.
0: And what had happened? What what when you finally heard from her? She finally rang me at about ten. I
1: said, Where are you? And she said, I've met some very nice bikies <laughs> and I'm in Chapel Street getting a tattoo. <laughs> so <laughs> So she someone dropped her home like a couple of hour, like an hour or so after that with you know the arm with glad wrap around it absolutely reeking of weed reeking of weed and um having had the the absolute time of
0: her life And what was under the glad wrap what tattoo had she a bit, It acquired? was a Brisbane lion
1: on the on her top left arm a maroon <laughs> Brisbane lion And she had many tats before Never, never won, and, and she hurt. loved telling people she loved telling people that uh you know, if anyone said to her, um, do, do they hurt she said, only if you're a bloke, <laughs> <laughs> not if you're a proper woman, you can handle pain if you're a proper woman, <laughs> so you know she was very proud of it.
0: What were things like between you at this stage of her life, Tony, you know, there'd obviously been some Pretty rough patches. How yeah. how did you get on by the time she was in a, her sixties and seventies?
1: I think we got on really much better. It, it the distance helps. I think when I moved to Melbourne, it actually really helped. But the further away you are, you know, the, it's easier in difficult relationships. Um, my sister was the saint who who saw her every week and did her shopping and looked after her in a in a kind of day-to-day way. And I was, you know, as this happens, I'm I'm sure my poor sister had to listen to mum telling her how great I was because the one who's never around <laughs> gets all the praise. The one who stays is underappreciated. But I think she was really proud of me at the end. And, and yeah, we, we talked on the phone and, and she adored Robbie and she became a much more settled person and a fantastic grandmother to my sister's kids.
0: Why? What kind of grandma was she like with them?
1: Well, the story that that, uh, sticks in my mind really was was when she was finally dying. So she had been on uh, dialysis and and developed a cough. Um, She did a scan, a chest scan, and they found substantial lung cancer and then they found secondaries in her brain and... um, it was decided that it was no longer beneficial for her to have the dialysis and really they just said um, you can go home and die and she was she was like fine (laughs) that's that's we all come to our time she was completely rational about it so so we took her home um, to her little unit on the Sunshine Coast and and she was obviously very unwell, so no longer having dialysis. And with this, she just had this enormous diagnosis. And she'd gone to bed and it just really very, very ill. And my sister had brought my niece and nephew over to, to see her. And I was there with mum and I let them in and, and I said just sit here and I'll just go and check that she's awake. So I went into the into her bedroom and she's getting up. She's getting <laughs> out of bed in her 90. and um, she goes, oh no, I'm getting up. And she walked along the kind of hallway toward the lounge room where she was sitting and as soon as she could see them and they could see her, she did this <laughs> kind of little dance. She did this funny kind of little jig um, up the hallway and And then sat in the lounge room with them for a good hour, chatting, asking them about school, you know, being a bit of a clown. It was a lovely visit. They went home (laughs) and I put her back to bed and I said, said, what was that about? And she said, I did not want their, their last memory of me to be me lying down in this bed
0: looking terrible.
1: And then she never got up again. She was dead in two weeks.
0: What? gifts have you received do you think Tony having had this quite extraordinary woman as your mother
1: um that's really interesting um I think I'm I'm quite unself-conscious, and I think that's from her like it, it's not enough just to say she didn't care about what people thought of her it's almost like she didn't have the facility to consider herself an object she was always the subject she was the subject she was the one looking outwards and and she 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 almost lacked the facility to imagine what she must appear like to other people and certainly that's that needs a little bit of moderation but i think i'm enormously lucky to have spent especially my formative years not even thinking about what other people, whether other people thought I was pretty or whether they thought I was smart or whether they or what they thought at all. Um, and it's enormously <laughs> beneficial thing for a writer mm. because uh, I don't really care about reviews or or rejections or you know whatever. And I think that that is a really enormous thing. Mm. and and also she's fearless. She was absolutely fearless. like she was, I think, a very courageous person, not always, sometimes it failed her, but overwhelmingly there was not one fight she would not take on. And I think that is, yeah, courage is a really important thing as well.
0: You've said that you were the square compared to this wild woman who was your (laughs) mother, but how did you uh, memorialise your mum after you turned 50? Well, I...
1: I got my own tattoo in the same spot. Not a Brisbane Lion, I hasten to add, but it, it was in the it's in the same spot and I I think of her when I when I see that tattoo. It's something that that I I'm, I'm never gonna be a punter and I'm never gonna live the way she lives. I am far too incredibly Controlled and high and tightly wound, to ever do anything like any of the things that she used to do. But but I think of her when I sometimes when I see my arm and I, and I am aware that it's in the same spot as hers.
0: <laughs> Tony, I have loved hearing about your mum and and speaking to you. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. It's been such a pleasure, Sarah. Thank you novelist Tony Jordan was my guest today and Tony's most recent book is called Prettier If She Smiled More. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. If you like conversations about big stuff, it doesn't get much bigger than parenting. I'm Maggie Dent, author, parenting educator and the Queen of Common Sense Parenting. You may have heard me on Conversations before, a few times, but did you know I have an ABC podcast? Actually, it's an award-winning podcast. It's called Parental as Anything. We tackle those big parenting problems straight on, the big ones and the small ones, while giving lots of practical tips and common sense solutions along the way. So, if you have tweens, teens, grandchildren or little ones of your own, let me help you be the parent you really want to be. Well, at least some of the time. Find Parental as Anything in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.